0: This week, end-of-life care in seven countries, and early trends from the Choosing Wisely campaign. Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined by, for the very first time, a new guest, Kieran Quinn. Kieran is a resident in internal medicine at the
1: University of Toronto. Hey Kieran, uh, welcome. Thank you Amol, it's great to be here. Happy to be on for the first time. Yeah, really really
0: uh, excited to have you. Thanks for reaching out. So Kieran reached out and said he wanted to talk about end of life care. It's, I know it's really important to you. It's something that uh, you think is Uh, a really important and you're sort of orienting your career around it. So we're excited to have you here to talk about that. So we're going to dive in this week. We're talking about two papers as always. And Kieran is going to talk to us about a major study that was published in JAMA around end of life care. And we'll talk about the topic a little bit more broadly at
1: some point too. So Kieran, take it away. Thanks, Amal. So uh, I want to talk to you guys about the uh, paper that was published by the International Consortium for End of Life Research. Uh, in JAMA uh, earlier this year in January of 2016. Um, And this study was a retrospective cohort study of people who were aged 65 years and older who died with cancer. Uh, And really what the study did was examine where people die, uh, and not only where they die, but the utilization of the healthcare system and the costs associated with it among seven countries in the developed world. Um, And really what they found was that Canada, uh, this being a Canadian podcast, uh, Canada was more hospital-centric than the United States and most other countries, and also had the highest percentage of patients who died in hospital, with the highest per-patient cost uh, in hospitals compared to the other countries. Okay, uh, that sounds like a very important finding. So
0: tell me what we knew about end-of-life care, uh, maybe in these countries or in Canada in
1: particular, before this study was conducted? Right. So uh, I'm going to talk to you about the Canadian data. Um, And every year, about 270,000 people die in Canada. Um, And about 76,000 of those individuals die uh, with cancer. Um, And part of uh, today's uh, discussion is to look at uh, end-of-life care and also having honest and candid discussions about the costs associated with it. So tell me what these authors did to study this problem? Um, It's a complicated study because uh, it comes from uh, seven uh, developed countries in the world. Um, But what the authors did was they took a cohort of patients who were over the age of 65, who uh, also had a diagnosis of some form of cancer. um, And they looked at uh, administrative and registry data sets to determine a number of, of things. Uh, One was the number of deaths uh, that occurred in acute care hospitals. Number two was uh, what they called inpatient utilization measures, which included emergency department visits, uh, admission to hospital, and also admissions to the intensive care unit. Three were outpatient utilization measures, which was primarily the use of chemotherapy in these individuals. Um, And the fourth uh, were hospital expenditures, uh, and whether that came from commercial or government insurance payment programs, depending on the countries in which the data came from. Uh, they looked at these expenditures uh, in the last 180 days of life, uh, as well as the last 30 days of life before before death. Okay, uh, and so what did they find? Um, so they found a lot of things, uh, and there's a lot of data to be, to be presented. Uh, what they did find, however, was that Canada had uh, among the highest death rate in acute care hospitals. They found 52% of patients with cancer died uh, in an, in some acute care hospital. Um, and uh, in Canada, we like to compare ourselves to the United States, uh, which is not far away from us. Uh, and the United States fared much better. Only 22% of uh, individuals died in acute care hospitals. And what about uh, other, other jurisdictions? Um, so other jurisdictions were varied. Um, if we look at England, um, they had... Uh, Uh, a lower rate of uh, of death in hospital by about 10%, so about 42% of patients died uh, in hospital uh, compared to Canada. Uh, And then the other countries included were Norway, the Netherlands, Germany, and Belgium. Um, The Netherlands was closer to the United States with 30% dying in hospital, and Belgium was closer to us with 50% dying in hospital. Okay. And so what about the other metrics, uh,
0: things like healthcare utilization, to, towards the end of life.
1: Right. So uh, there again, Canada uh, is a very hospital-centric uh, country. Uh, we we hospitalize about 87% of our patients in the last six months of life. Uh, and the average length of stay or time spent in hospital during that time equated to about three weeks. So almost a month of their life was, uh, was spent uh, in hospital right before they died. Uh, we admit uh, uh, 15% of our patients to the intensive care unit, wow. which was actually uh, in the middle of all of the different uh, countries. Uh, and uh, again, comparing to the United States, as we love to do, uh, the U.S. Uh, actually admits 40% of their patients to the intensive care unit. So, so a lot more than us uh, in, in patients' last uh, days of life. With regards to how often patients visit the emergency department, Uh, In Canada, almost 9 out of 10, so 88% of patients, visit the emergency department at least once in the last six months of life for some problem. So maybe this is an
0: appropriate time to, to make a comment about the selection criteria for this study and the way they looked at their metrics in order to interpret some of these findings. So you talked about intensive care death. And one of the points that uh that you mentioned about this study is that this is a study of people who have a diagnosis of cancer in administrative databases Mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily why these people died was due to cancer so can you tell me
1: so first of all is there any comment about the cause of death in this study no there's not so they all they know from the data sets in the various countries is that the patient died and where that patient died And that they had a comorbid uh, diagnosis of cancer, but not that the cause of death was necessarily cancer. And so I think one of the
0: underlying implications of the way, you know, we all read this data is that less death in hospital is better, right? Like the, or less death in the intensive care unit is better. And probably to some extent that's true. I think we would agree that some, to some extent, less death in hospital might be better, but for some people it might be you know appropriate. And especially in a setting where the cause of death isn't necessarily cancer or a terminal illness, it's not a, it may not be unreasonable that 15% of these people died in the intensive care unit. You know, I think when we hear, if you just listen to the study of face value, it sounds like, oh, 15% of patients who died from cancer died in the ICU, but that's not necessarily the case. It's 15% of people who died with cancer Correct. may have died in the ICU. And so that
1: you know, uh, yeah. makes I mean, it a
0: little bit more challenging.
1: I think it. your point is, is, is right on um, in that uh, some of these individuals uh, will die in hospital from causes other than cancer and require them to be in hospital. A prototypical example uh, might be a pulmonary embolism, a clot to, in their lungs, that can be associated with many different forms of cancer. Um, and certainly the symptoms uh, related to that uh, presentation might be such that they couldn't comfortably be, be managed at home or somewhere outside of the hospital. Or they may, uh, they may have died of some other cause that, that isn't reported in this study. Um, but I think one thing that's important to highlight uh, is that there was a survey done of Canadians uh, over the age of 65 Um, and asking them uh, what type of care they would like to receive near the end of life. And this was not patients, uh, Canadians with cancer. It was just any Canadians who were hospitalized in general. And importantly, that study found that 70% of elderly Canadians reported in this survey that they would want what we call comfort measures, just care that's focused on relief of suffering, and they would like to be at home to receive that care rather than life-prolonging treatments that are often delivered in settings like the intensive care unit, and to some extent, the acute care setting. Um, and the data shows that 50% of our patients die in hospitals. So in some respect, we're not meeting the needs uh, or the wants of our patients, um, and we need to do better.
0: Yeah. And so can I ask you a question about how palliative care facilities are coded in this type of data in the sense, is a palliative care unit uh, an inpatient palliative care unit considered an acute care
1: facility? Do you know? Uh, in this, So with regards to a palliative care unit, I don't know the answer to that question from this study. They don't actually make it clear from what I've seen. But they do comment that uh, nursing homes, for example, are not considered to be uh, acute uh, care institutions. Um, and hospices, uh, which are very... Uh, prevalent in the United States and in Canada, we have very few of them, if any at all, uh, are also not considered an acute care setting. Um, And potentially one of the reasons why Canadians die so much more frequently in hospital is our lack of infrastructure in having palliative care units and hospice type settings to care for these individuals. Okay, yeah. So I guess that's a
0: potential limitation of this study would be if if they were unable to exclude inpatient palliative care facilities, let's say in Canada, as opposed to which might be the equivalent of a hospice facility at another in another country like the United States, maybe that might explain some of the differences. But what do you think are the major explanations of the big differences between Canada and the other countries uh, in this study?
1: I think that... Um for me in my experience in the healthcare system and what I understand of palliative care and the delivery of it in Canada is that Canada has a major shortage of access to palliative care. And a lot of that is not uh, driven by uh, good intentions, it's driven by our geographic nature of our country and how large and spread out we are. And so for example, in urban centers, access to palliative care is actually quite robust and many patients are able to receive that. Um, But in Northern Canada, uh, certainly, there is little to no palliative care available, and the, the uh, extent of palliative care units are very, very limited in those settings as well. Um, so I think that that is a major challenge that's unique to Canada and potentially accounts for one of the reasons that many of our patients die in hospital. Okay, so we've talked about some of the
0: uh, important methodological limitations of this study. You mentioned that this we don't know about the the cause of death in this study, um, are there any other limitations you want to comment on from this study?
1: Yeah, these are probably more minor limitations, but, but always important to highlight when, when analyzing a study and looking at potential reasons for differences between their outcomes. Um, and when it comes to the Canadian data that they used for this study, they actually used the Ontario, Ontario's health data because Ontario has a very rich uh, administrative data set Um, But, uh, you know, Ontario represents only about 30% of the entire population of Canada. uh, And certainly other provinces may have slightly different practices uh, that would influence the rates of death, for example, in those provinces. So, um, Kieran, tell me what you think is the most important
0: takeaway um, from this study. And it sounds like this is very much a descriptive presentation of the way things are, but maybe highlights some important opportunities uh, that maybe you will like to pursue in the rest of your career, for example?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, uh, we, didn't, we didn't talk about one of the other principal findings, uh, in, which was the cost of care, um, which we sort of mentioned earlier, but that, that Canadians spent uh, on a per capita or per patient basis uh, $26,000 for their care within the last six months of life. And uh, that, that sort of equated to almost $1,200 per day uh, for these individuals. Um, and we were one of the highest. Um, so if we looked at England, which was the similar payment uh, insurance system, they only spent uh, uh, about $9,000 uh, for their care in the, uh, near the end of life, or $500 per, per day in hospital. And interestingly, where the US had far fewer people die in hospital, their expenditures were almost the same as Canada. In fact, they spent close to $20,000 uh, in for the care in the end of life. And uh, in fact, their per-day hospital costs were even higher at uh, close to $1,800 per day. Um, and that probably is a consequence of their their rate of the intent use of intensive care uh, near the end of life, which was much, much higher than ours. Okay, so tell me, wh- what do you want our listeners to take away from this paper? Scots see death as imminent. Canadians see death as inevitable and Californians see death as optional. This was a a, a, a somewhat humorous quote I came across from the authors actually in a New York Times article that they wrote about their paper. Um, But I think it's telling in that uh, the culture of a country um, dictates a lot about the healthcare that they uh, desire and receive. Um, And this study to me uh, highlights that Canada uh, spends a lot on end of life care in the acute care setting. And unfortunately, many of our patients die in places at least that previous surveys would suggest they would prefer not to. Um, And and so I think we need to work on strategies to to change that. Uh, And that for me principally comes from improving access to palliative care uh, uh, across the country. Um, and as you said, my my future career interests lie in this, in this realm, and I hope to uh, both study intensively with high-quality research, but also implement uh, ways in which we can deliver better care that uh, may or may not cost less than the existing uh, healthcare uh, provisions that we have uh, for our patients who die with cancer. Thanks so much, Karen. Let's change gears. And uh, I want to
0: talk about an early evaluation of trends around the Choosing Wisely campaign. Looking forward to it. So um, I want to talk about a paper that was published by Rosenberg and colleagues in JAMA Internal Medicine um, looking at early trends among seven recommendations from the Choosing Wisely campaign. This was a uh, retrospective analysis of insurance claims for 25 million people in the United States and basically showed that for these seven recommendations, there were only marginal, if any changes at all, in the recommendations sort of before and after the recommendations were made by Choosing Wisely.
1: So I've chosen Wisely and learned uh, as much as I could about this Choosing Wisely campaign, all, but tell me what what the background on it is, what we know about it and why it's important uh, moving forward. So uh, most of our listeners are probably
0: familiar with the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is a physician-led movement uh, that started in the United States and has now disseminated to a number of countries around the world, including Canada, which is an effort to promote conversations between patients and uh, physicians around unnecessary care, overuse and waste and harms of unnecessary care. Um, And the campaign was piloted in 2009. And... ultimately became a champion initiative of the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation and has really grown since 2012 is when the major sort of expansion started happening. It's now been taken up by sort of hundreds of subspecialty groups of physician groups in the United States and uh, dozens in Canada have produced lists of tests or treatments which they believe to be unnecessary or harmful. And the idea is that by publicizing these unnecessary tests or treatments, hopefully that can inspire reduced usage of those treatments um, and tests and promote better care, both in terms of efficiency and cost savings, but also in terms of reducing harm uh, and reducing
1: waste. So tell me, Emil, well, how did they go about answering these questions?
0: Yeah, so these authors, so this is a very challenging uh question to evaluate, which is what is the effect of the Choosing Wisely campaign? Because obviously, you know it, you're talking about a large societal level campaign. Um, so these authors chose to conduct a, a retrospective observational analysis of insurance ca- claims from a large uh, so the Blue Cross Blue Shield anthem uh, uh, insurance company across the United States. So it was coverage of about 25 million people. They picked seven low-value services that came up in a number of different Choosing Wisely uh, campaign lists. And so the seven services they picked were, uh, were imaging tests for headache with where there was no red flags, uh, cardiac imaging in patients who did not have a history of cardiac conditions, perioperative chest x-rays when patients had normal history and physical examination, low back pain imaging uh, in patients who did not have red flags, HPV testing uh, for women younger than 30 years old, Uh, antibiotics for acute sinusitis, and prescription of anti-inflammatory medication for patients who had contraindications due to things like hypertension, heart failure, or chronic kidney disease. So these authors used uh, medical and pharmacy data from uh, administrative claims Uh, to evaluate the use of these tests or treatments and basically they started in 2010 and looked as far forward as 2013 and they looked at the quarterly use of these tests in this population. So how many of these tests were used each quarter in this population and the seven choosing wisely recommendations were published in the second quarter of 2012. So basically right in the middle, they looked about a year and a half before. Uh, or two years before and about a year and a half after um, to see if there were any trends they could observe in the change in the use of these tests and to see whether the
1: publication of the Choosing Wisely recommendations caused any noticeable change. So a pre-implementation and post-implementation analysis following the introduction of Choosing Wisely campaign. Yeah, that's right. And I think the word implementation there we have to use a bit
0: carefully because it's not clear that there were any interventions or anything implemented around these specific recommendations within this patient population. It was just that that's when the choosing wisely lists were published, you know, on a national scale. And so here's what they found. Basically, they found that there was no real difference in any of the seven services. If we want to get into it a little bit more granularly, they found that two services were used very frequently. So chest x-rays in people who were going for surgery, who did not have a very remarkable history, were used at almost a rate of 90% in, wow. the, in the in this population of people going for uh, surgeries. Uh, antibiotics for acute sinusitis were used at a rate of about 80% of people who had an acute sinusitis received an, an antibiotic, um, whereas some tests and services were used at a very low rate. So... Uh, HPV testing or PAP testing in, uh, women under the age of 30 was at a rate of less than 5%. Cardiac imaging for people without a history or concern, again, around about 5%. So there's a pretty big spread in the use of these seven things that have been declared as low value care. And that's interesting and important in and of itself.
1: Yeah. So I, I just had a question about that. Did, did before choosing wisely created these lists in the individual, uh, societies, Did they know that, sorry, did they know how frequently that these tests or interventions were being used and that helped guide them in creating these lists? Or were they simply the opinion of a variety of society members based on on personal experiences?
0: Yeah, so one of the strengths and also, you know, weaknesses of the Choosing Wisely campaign is that it's been a very grassroots driven movement. And so what that means is that each physician organization created a list of what they described to be low value services, but there's no uniform methodology for the development of those lists. And so each list, each physician group could have adopted a different strategy. They were told to prioritize certain things. They were told to prioritize things that caused harm as things that we should stop doing. They're also told to prioritize things that were common and things that were within the purview of their specialty. And so common things were meant to be ranked highly on these lists as things that we should stop doing, but there was no uniform method for identifying what those things are. And as you can see, within the seven recommendations that were chosen to be evaluated by these authors, some were very common and some were not very common at all. Right. Um, And as I mentioned, so, there was no real difference across the study period in any of these. There were small uh, uh, differences in some. So for headache imaging and cardiac imaging, there was a small statistically significant reduction in use by about 1%, around about 1%. Um, but you know whether that's a clinically meaningful change in that time period is very debatable. So I think the main message to take away is that there really doesn't seem to have been a large effect of the choosing wisely campaign method in terms of the utilization of these seven tests in the first year and a half after the campaign was launched.
1: So before I ask you the elephant in the room, uh, any specific methodological concerns around this study Well, now I'm curious about what the elephant in the room is, but I'm going to, so in
0: terms of limitations of the study, I mean, there's, there's, there are a couple. So one is that this is based on administrative claims data. So choosing wisely is all about appropriateness and encouraging conversations between patients and physicians. And those are by their nature, nuanced decisions. Um, whereas administrative claims data by their nature lack all nuance. And so, um, you know, the ability to evaluate appropriateness with this methodology is a little bit questionable. So, for example, some of these things like uh, imaging tests for headache in the absence of complicated conditions May be difficult to capture from uh, administrative codes, right? So one of the, for example, one potential complicating condition for a headache would be whether it's a sudden or first onset headache, right? And that's not necessarily going to be in an administrative code. Similarly, if the headache uh, wakes you up in the middle of the night, right? Um, but again, may not be an administrative code. So there are certainly some limitations around the use of claims data to evaluate these things. The second thing, and probably more. Important uh, a critique of this is that there's no control for secular trends over time. So, you know, to be able to say that this is all attributed to choosing wisely, either as a success or as a failure, um, is challenging in the absence of a control population, um, or in the absence of really a long set of trends over time. And we, you know, this is a, a three, th- approximately three-year study period. And you could ask the question, is a year and a half of time after a campaign, enough time to really be evaluating for a difference.
1: Right, so let's cut to the brass tax here. Uh, in a- Is it an elephant or is it brass tax? It's both. It's an elephant it's a walking on brass tax. Oh geez, okay. Um, so in a campaign that is designed to reduce uh, utilization of low value uh, investigations, etc., cetera, uh, in a study that demonstrated that that is not the case, is this a waste of time? Is choosing wisely a failure?
0: Um. Yeah, gr- good question. If we were like doing clickbait, if this was like a BuzzFeed article, we would write 21 reasons why choosing wisely <laughs> isn't working or something. But I think if we're being nuanced about our appraisal of this evidence, I think we'd have to say that what have we seen? We have not seen a change in utilization of seven services here. We're limited in our methodology in terms of understanding whether... Um, you know this is appropriate or, or not but presumably some amount of this is unnecessary because these have been listed as low value. I think the major thing to take away is first of all this is a relatively short period after the choosing wisely publication and second of all you know th- a lot of the effort around choosing wisely to date has been around generating lists of low value tests and and treatments. And appropriately so, right? Like to start any campaign, you have to start with like generating some consensus around what's important, but certainly now at the point where Choosing Wisely has achieved a certain degree of name recognition and is sort of in the zeitgeist of, of health care delivery and training. Um, There's a real need to push towards, okay, how do we actually implement change around some of these recommendations Um, instead of just encouraging conversations, which is where it started? How do we actually start moving the needle on utilization and low-value care? Do you have any thoughts on how one might start implementing these types of recommendations? Um, I have... Many thoughts, but whether any of them are of value is 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 a
1: reasonable question. Pun they, they might be low value. Uh, yeah, yeah, low value ideas. Exactly.
0: Pun not intended, but embraced um, at the when it came up. So I think you know there's lots of different approaches people have taken. Whether it is things like uh, changing order sets in a hospital to reduce routine investigations to uh, clinical decision support. You know, We've seen uh, several recent randomized control trials published in JAMA, one of which we covered on the rounds table, uh, leading to a reduction in prescription of antibiotics for upper respiratory tract infections in primary care by performing feedback to primary care physicians and providing real-time decision support. So there's all sorts of strategies to reducing low-value utilization. And it'll be curious to see these kinds of uh, population-based evaluations going forward. Uh, And uh, as our attention shifts towards implementation. Very wise. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. So um, thanks very much for this conversation today. We kind of covered a couple of, in some ways, related topics around uh, low value care, both choosing wisely and at the end of life and uh, highlighted some important opportunities for future work. So Kieran, let's come to uh, my favorite part of every episode, which is the good stuff segment. So tell me something short and sweet from the world of medicine that caught your eye this week.
1: So I read about uh, PEDs, not performance enhancing drugs, but performance enhancing devices uh, in a company called Halo Sport. They produce uh, a device that institutes transcranial direct current stimulation Uh, and claim that it improves uh, athletes' performance and strength by up to 10% simply by uh, applying this headset-like looking device uh, while you work out. Uh, And this is potentially a major market. There's estimates that it's a $6 billion market by 2020, so lots of uh, interest in this neuropriming research with unknown safety effects down the road. We should try priming ourselves and then doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can get through it 10% faster.
0: Yeah. To our listeners who are current, what you don't know is that actually we, we replaced most of our talking in this podcast with subtle wave energy. So you've been having this kind of neuro enhancement for the last 20 minutes. Do you feel better for it? Okay. So my good stuff is um, an article that was uh, published in The Atlantic called How a Small Town Became the Capital of HIV in America. So this is an article about Austin, Indiana, which is a tiny town of just 4,100 people. And this town became the epicenter of the single largest HIV outbreak in U.S. history in December of 2014. So Austin went from having approximately three cases of HIV per year to 180 in 2015, which is a prevalence rate close to that seen in sub-Saharan Africa. The town also has an incredibly high proportion of uh, intravenous drug users. So of the 4,100 people in the town, an estimated 500 people are using intravenous drugs. Um, wow. So that's a remarkably high that's uh, population. That's incredible. And so this article gets into um, a really beautiful piece of reporting, sort of painting a picture of the town, describing some of the inhabitants, describing the social situation, and uh, postulating a theory around uh, how the coexistence of intravenous drug use and HIV may have emerged. Uh, and so I strongly encourage you have a read. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to having a read myself. Okay. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, I'm glad we got to talk today. Welcome to The Rounds Table. I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash Table. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstable podcast.
1: Thanks for listening.